0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Oliver Gail Grant, joined today by Dr Peter Wilson, who is a Consultant Psychiatrist and Trust Research Lead at Cheshire and Wirral NHS Trust. We're here today to discuss his new paper, written with Clara Humpston and Rajan Nathan, Innovations in the Psychopathology of Schizophrenia, a Primary for Busy Clinicians, uh, which is published in BJ Psych Advances. Pete, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: So, this is a paper that I think uh, at first glance might look a little intimidating to some clinicians because it covers essentially some neuroscience updates in schizophrenia and how the knowledge can sort of be applied to the clinic. So, tell us, what's the headline that we should take away?
1: Great. The, the, the headline is that there's no need for any intimidation. I'm a, I'm a full time clinician. So, this is sort of the neuroscience element, is more of a hobby for me than anything else. But the, the, the headline is that I think there's been a lot of developments. In terms of the psychopathology of schizophrenia, in the last uh, 40 to 50 years, that we don't tend to hear much about, whether whether that's at medical school or in postgraduate training, and it was really just to give give people a flavour that I, I seem to have come across these, thanks to some of my academic contacts, and it's really exciting, really interesting things happen, and I think that we're about that the time is about right that we can start introducing these developments into clinical practice, and and really these developments are in the domains of phenomenology so we've got a a better and richer understanding of the experience of uh, schizophrenia and psychosis but also in processes in both the mind and the brain and the the cognitive processes and also there's been the birth of computational psychiatry which is about how we can start analysing all this information and I wonder if that might be the key to how we can bring some of these advances into the clinic and into the inpatient wards. So really to say it's a, a really exciting time and I think that's that the time is ripe to bring these new advances, uh, as I say, into clinical practice.
0: So, I mean, I think something that most people could agree on is that advances in the clinical treatment of schizophrenia are, are somewhat overdue in the world of psychiatry, you know, uh, as I guess most people in psychiatry know, the management hasn't changed a great deal in the last 50 years. So, so what are the changes in understanding that you're trying to get across here? Should we maybe talk through the different sections of the paper one by one a little bit?
1: Yeah, great. That'd be great. So I'll just give you an update. So we've we've sort of split them into a few categories, really, which of course is artificial because they all they all meld into one. But one one of the most useful things that I've been introduced to is looking at a sort of a, a levels of analysis concept. So for a long time there've been sort of debates about is is you know was, was schizophrenia a, a brain disorder or a, or a psychological disorder, and the answer is of course that it's it's both, and that it just depends at which point or level of analysis you look at. So for example, you know there, there are treatment options for all the levels. One is, if you look at the very basic, you can start with genetics and then the neurochemistry, and then the, the sort of cognitive approaches, going up to the mind-based approaches, going up then to sort of psychological presentations and, and to society. And it, we, we broke the paper down, looking at developments in each of those. So, so the first thing to say really is we, we began by looking at uh, phenomenology and what really, what, what is the clinical presentation of schizophrenia? And we we thought that for a long time particularly at medical school and postgraduate courses we've been talking very taught a very old system of psychopathology based on sort of the, the mid 19th century really of sort of Kraepelin and Schneider and that sort of thing and it was just to say that since then there have been people doing a lot of work about um, the experience of schizophrenia and I think we've got a bit more of a more nuanced understanding now so it would just take you through perhaps start some of those start there then perhaps if we look at some of the mind-based models and particularly Ipseity, then some of the cognitive models, perhaps aberrant salience and source monitoring defects, before looking at how the sort of computational and predictive processing models might be able to gel it all together and perhaps and, and link all the levels. So, so if we start at what what we think schizophrenia is now, so there's been some really really interesting work done in terms of uh, instruments. Now these are. Can be categorized into the BSABs, the E's, and the Eway, EWE. Now that's all a bit, a bit of a bit of a mouthful, but the the, the BSAB stands for the, the the bond scale of basic symptoms. And what that talks about really, it just gives us a sort of introduction about the, the notions of schizophrenia. I think one thing uh, a lady called Nancy Andreessen talked about a while ago was the, the death of phenomenology in the United States. What she was sort of saying was that we've become very focused on symptom checklists and SM and ICD checklists. And I think what the Bond scale does, and looking at the basic symptom concept, just widen our lens a little bit. So it, it talks about, obviously, people in schizophrenia tend to have a, a hypersensitivity to sound and uh, also experience symptoms of what could be termed as metachromopsia which is a, a change in perception of color or, or even dysmegalopsia and we found out when we read the bond scale and the b that these are things that we'd we'd heard patients saying but we didn't necessarily know they were part of the, the schizophrenia concept we, we just thought that uh, it, it was something they were saying the ease that's the examination of an uh, anomalous self-experience developed by joseph parnas in around about 2005 that focuses on a disturbance of self-awareness looking at the concept of schizophrenia as a disorder of the self, or, or the ipsaity model, uh, as, as we call it. And what it does, again, it just gives us that richer understanding of what our patients are experiencing. Things that resonated with me, in, in particular on the on the ease, were things about spatialization of experience. That's where a patient reports that their thoughts are located to a particular part of their head or their brain. And I, I'd heard patients talking about that but I didn't know it was a thing, so to speak, until I, until I read the which again is just a long list of questions, but it gives you that richness and understanding the patient experience. So I did a patient tell me that his, his own thoughts were at the back of the he- his head and the thoughts not under his agency were, were in a circle in the middle. And I think that is what Joseph Pius was getting at in his ease. So there's also, the ease also talks about the notion of mirror related phenomena where, where patients with schizophrenia can sometimes spend a long time examining themselves in the mirror. And, and that's looking for facial change. And I'd, I'd seen it on the wards, but I'd not picked it up as being part of a, a syndrome necessarily. And then the final sort of scale we talk about in the paper just, uh, that clinicians might not be particularly familiar with is the IWI. And that's the, sorry, the examination of anomalous world experience developed by Louis Sass and colleagues. And that's similar to the Wives and, and, and can be used in partnership, but it focuses on the, the, the lived world and has a more sort of world-facing view. And items on that that really interested me were things that they, it talks about the notion in schizophrenia of movements or events being sped up or slowed down, and again that was something I'd heard patients say, but you won't find it in the diagnostic manuals necessarily. And I just found it gave us sort of a much a much broader uh, broader view of things really. So so the, the first section of the paper just deals with that really the, the difficulties in sort of where, where we got to with traditional psychopathological frameworks. And that there is alerting the listeners that there are these now new frameworks, which, which just give us a much sort of broader, more detailed understanding of our patients.
0: So would you recommend for a, a, you know, a psychiatrist wanting to improve their schizophrenia clinical practice, would you recommend that they're implementing one of these or multiple of these or all of these into each time that they meet a, a new patient?
1: That's a really good question. So the answer is no. We, you know, we all know working in NHS, everyone is pushed for time and clinical encounters are no different so what I think though is just having an awareness of these instruments even just having a read through once just allows the clinician to be aware uh, of some of the things their patients might be experiencing and they're often quite private thoughts and something that we often patients often don't reveal unless you specifically ask and also I, I think that if you have an aware of these awareness of these instruments You can get to a diagnosis more quickly if you if you constrain yourself as as we all uh, tend to do including myself you know when we push for time about asking for the positive symptoms of sort of delusions and hallucinations you miss a lot of that patient experience and i think that the real advantage of these instruments is that it allows you to get alongside the patient and it gives them confidence that you understand uh, an experience for them that's quite often frightening or, or or mystifying and when, when a patient sees that you recognize that, it gives them a little bit of comfort. So as well as being able to diagnose a bit quicker and get, get to the, the essence of things, it, it allows you to say, get alongside. And that, that helps with all sorts of things. It it relieves sort of fear in the patient and it allows their family to recognize that you understand this process and that it's not new new to you. And I think that's really important in, in, in how we see things. And, and, and the last thing to say about these scales is, well, as I say, I certainly wouldn't recommend going through them for every encounter, but just have an awareness of things that are in them, is that I think... In the next, I hope in the next decade or so, they're going to act to as a sort of a, a center point for the focus of more neuro, neurobiological research. And one of the difficulties we've had is that a lot of, a lot of research obviously focuses on the DSM-5 and ICD de- definitions. And there's, there's a bit of concern that if we, if we haven't got those right, as, as being at the essence of schizophrenia, then they're unlikely to get get the research and neuro, neurobiological correlates completely right. Hmm.
0: I mean, that is a a universal problem in, in psychiatric research, isn't it? Is that obviously the uh, diagnoses themselves are, uh, to a certain degree, moving targets. You know, they're not stable from one decade to the next decade. They're not stable from one country to the other country or one manual to the other manual. So, uh, yes, it is attractive to move to a symptom-based classification for um, clinical research work. Um, okay, so the recommendation is that a psychiatrist listening to this reads one of these scales and tries to sort of get a bit of a grasp of the different symptom domains that are contained within. Um, so the next part of the paper, you're sort of discussing this next idea that might be helpful to clinicians, which is thinking about sort of cognitive process-based models, uh, yeah. of which the first one, the aberrant salience hypothesis, I guess people may have heard of. Um, but just talk us through this section a little bit.
1: Yeah, so this is, this is probably that the cognitive-based process models and the uh, predictive processing framework are probably my sort of my favorite parts of the paper because I, I think like a, what a lot of people said to me when they read the paper was that when we, when we go to medical school pe- people have put off psychiatry because it seems like a sort of a um, element of translation whereas actually the, the, the advantage of these systems is that we, we can we can let psychiatrists and patients know that we, we now have a better understanding of why you're having these experiences rather than just sort of translating them into sort of technical terminology. So the two things that I really liked particularly with aberrant salience is because it it gives a process to a symptom so aberrant salience is the process that's critical in explaining delusional mood it's it's one virtually all clinicians will be familiar with
0: so just, just to interrupt you so aberrant salience just for the benefit of any uh psychiatrist that hasn't gotten the medical school text out oh, recently go okay go on
1: yeah. go on yeah no, no i'll go through it so that that's what it's coming to it's it's a, it's a deficit in the way we we normally filter out the mundane. If you think about the amount of information we're getting, uh, you know, visually and, or auditory, it's absolutely huge, but most of it is, isn't relevant to that immediate decision-making that we've got to make. But if we have a problem filtering out the mundane or a problem with the filter, and therefore we, we give salience to things that don't need it, and that tends to lead to a, a general sense of inexplicable significance. And that's what we mean by delusional uh, mood. And we think key linked to that is sort of dopamine chemistry. Um, and there is there is sort of very good evidence about that uh, if, perhaps if I just go into that link with dopamine then I think we, we know that drugs which increase stratal dopamine release such as amphetamines cause psychosis we know that drugs drugs which block d2 and dc receptors help with psychosis but the, the key question is then if we think we've got this process where we give importance to events which shouldn't have them or the mundane what what is can we link that to dopamine as as we have linked to lots of schizophrenia to dopamine in the past for many years and I think There's some really good studies, Uh, an early one was done by John Rosier and colleagues at UCL and they asked patients who were at ultra high risk of psychosis, so people who didn't have a a frank psychosis yet but were considered very high risk, to do salience attribution tests and then they did functional MRI and PET scans and what they found out was that they, they were able to say that aberrant salience, this notion of giving importance to events which don't need them, were indeed involved in psychosis and not only that, but that disturbances in sort of sub- subcortical dopamine were the, at the root of that aberrant salience experience, and I think when I when I came back, to sort of get it alongside the patient, I I was saying in my paper that I think if we can start using the term aberrant salience in the case notes rather than delusional mood, we've got one step closer to solving the problem, so to speak. And I don't know if it's a big step or not, but it's an important step, and I think what I've been trying to do and some of my colleagues have is when you when you start using that sort of term, a process term in your explanations with with patients and families, I think it really seems to resonate with them. Their families know that they have a delusional mood, but they're picking up connections and mystifications where there aren't any. So that if you tell the family that you, don't, you haven't really told them anything new. Whereas if you can tell them about aberrant salience and how it's linked to dopamine and they, they can't filter out all the mundane information, that gives them a sense that we have got an understanding of this. And again, it it gives them a sense of that we're, we're able to sort of rationalise frightening and quite strange experiences of both the patient and the family. And that, that I think, is the, the value uh, in a, a sort of a, pro, a cognitive process term. Mm,
0: mm, mm. And so, I, I mean, I, I can't see that, that could be quite sort of comforting from a psychoeducational perspective to a patient to say that, look, uh, there is some sort of understanding of why this is happening. Uh, I mean, I guess the criticism of this would be that how strong really is our understanding of that's what's going on in schizophrenia? I mean, uh, just about any part of the brain that you can name any connection between any two areas and any neurotransmitter uh, has been associated with schizophrenia in, you know, dozens of papers. So it's a bit sort of, of a, uh, uh, I guess, a sort of controversial and cloudy area to pick your way through, isn't it?
1: It, it, it is, it is. And, and I think the benefit of the paper is that it, it is aimed at people like myself who are full-time clinicians. And, and you know, it, it's aimed at that level because that's the level I can give. But I, I think there's there's enough information to suggest that these things are, are you know, we, we we know that dopamine has involved in aberrant salience. And I think what's given us the real sort of clarification uh, in, in more recent times with the advent of the predictive processing network, which I think, as I say, links these levels. And I think it's the connections between, between symptoms or the phenomenology and the experience and the neurochemistry and the brain pathways, which is going to give us the real advances. So perhaps if I just use this, to, this time to go through the predictive processing network, which, which of course involves uh, dopamine chemistry. So this, this, this notion has um, come along, last 10 to 15 years, and it's un, underpinned by Bayes' theorem, which is that, quite simply, that incoming information is interpreted in the light of our prior expectations and beliefs. So incoming information, you think about the visual information, the information you hear. It's not just a case of seeing something and, and believing it. It's a case of seeing something, and then that gets sort of weighed up by your brain who decide, who tells you whether to believe it or not. So it's, it's not quite as, as simple as we we first thought. So a good example, though, is, is moon images. So if you have a, a distorted image in black and white, it can be quite difficult to, to see anything in that image but if someone tells you what to look for the image becomes much clearer and that's an example of our, our sensory information being interpreted in the light of our prior expectation or, or a prior belief so really the brain is constantly making predictions and, and our brain also has an internal model of the world now if our sensory data from our eyes and ears don't match the world model than are expected this generates a prediction error signal, and our brain's model of the world needs to be updated. Um, and if the delicate balance of this prediction system goes awry, it can result in faulty predictions, leading to false beliefs, delusions, uh, and false perceptions, hallucinations. And the, our beliefs and our perception emerge from a sort of a very complex and delicate balance of interaction between bottom-up bottom and top-down top processes. Now, just going into it very briefly because that's that's all i can um bottom up refers to a signal from sensory information the eyes and the ears top down refers to signals driven by cognition and prediction um and we think we think that that balance is, is mediated by dopamine and so this notion of the, the brain being a predictive organ and a, a processing organ just gives a bit more weight to the notion that just saying alone that schizophrenia is a disorder of dopamine which as you say we've been saying for a long time and this gives a bit more nuance a bit more detail and makes it into a a process rather than just a a link of this causes that which we which we know is a a great undersimplification. Mm. Uh,
0: Yes I mean it is quite um, I suppose that's the thing isn't it is in the field of uh, schizophrenia research or any sort of uh, brain chemistry research, it's very complicated. So there is a need, I suppose, if you're going to try and bring something into at least the mind of a clinician, there's a need to have a way of simplifying and thinking about it. And I think uh, thinking about this top-down, bottom-up imbalance is you know, quite a reasonable one that most people could probably get along with. Um, now, I suppose so I suppose the, the sort of overarching mantra of this paper is that clinicians should think more about neuroscience. So I mean, obviously, what you've said in the paper could reasonably be implemented. I suppose the question is really, is this going to actually bring about sort of help and change to patients? So uh, if I was a patient, would it be better for me to be thought about in a you know, maybe a more nuanced way? Or would it actually make a difference if someone ran out a diagnostic manual and uh, you know, prescribed me the first drug on the list? Uh, I suppose that's what I can't quite see in my mind.
1: Yeah, and and that and that's the key question, isn't it? That, that that is the crux of the question. So so I so the answer is I I think this sort of approach, um, looking at a more detailed phenomenology, in, in trying to use terms like uh, source monitoring uh, deficits and, and aberrant salience in clinic is important, and, and the reason I think that is as I touched on before, I I think it allows you to demystify frightening concepts and frightening experiences for, for relatives. We, as clinicians, we're quite used to these sort of presentations of delusions and hallucinations. But if if you've got a relative uh, who's experiencing these and, and you're not from a medical background, it's, it's really frightening and, and, and really unusual. And I think to be able to give uh, patients and, and families an explanation based on process rather than just saying it, it's dopamine or, or anything else, I think that's a significant step forward. And I also think it has all sorts of advantages we find. We've been trying to do that for about, about a year now in sort of my own my own wall. But it gets patients sort of next to you. And they're much more willing to sort of try medications or, or work with you if they feel they've got confidence that you know a little bit more about what what's going on. And the the other thing to say is I think I do push for a, a bigger connection, you know, between university neuroscience and the clinic, because I, I also think that sort of approach Has an innate advantage of driving up clinical standards. Aside from anything else it achieves, I think it does improve clinical standards. And the other thing, advantage I would say of trying to use that approach, while I do think it has some sort of direct benefits in terms of understanding, I also think the more clinicians we get in thinking that way, if we do get a closer alliance, and I hope we do, between sort of university departments and their local psychiatry units because I think we have lost that in in recent years especially when talking to sort of more experienced colleagues I think that we, we can pave the way for a manner of thinking and I'm hoping that with the, the advances we've seeing in computational psychiatry we might start to see some real real sort of fruit being born from that in the next 10 20 years and I think importantly our collaborations between clinicians and academics because I do think there is a role for clinicians who have a really good feeling for mental illness, being able to have some role in directing research. Clearly, we're not going to understand the stats, the mechanisms quite as well, we, we, that, that's not our role, but I do think there is a, there's an advantage in an exchange of ideas happening on a regular basis. You know, we've got the, the ability to do that online now, if we didn't have a while ago, but I think that exchange, as I say, drives up clinical standards and can help shape the direction for future research if we get it right, as, as well as being, I will say, motivating and enjoyable for clinicians. You know, as I say, I think lots of people who were trained in a very sort of traditional way you know looking at sort of first rank symptoms and that sort of thing this will really sort of be a pleasurable way to open their eyes i think this really you know bowled me over when i saw these concepts and it's quite exciting to be involved in yeah
0: Mm -hmm. well i mean i think there's a lot of things there that um, no uh, clinician will disagree with there is a need for uh schizophrenia treatments in particular to be updated and uh, you're right that the chasm between Uh, clinical and research world and mental health is just growing by the day. So thank you very much for attempting to narrow it. And thank you for joining us on the podcast. That was Dr. Peter Wilson, uh, consultant psychiatrist and trust research lead at Cheshire and Wirral NHS Trust. And we were discussing his new paper in BJ Psych Advances, Innovations in the Psychopathology of Schizophrenia, a Primer for Busy Clinicians. Pete, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Oliver. Absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal Portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.